Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a weekly news analysis podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson. Uh, this week we're going to be talking about continued violence in the northwest of the United States. Hey, you know, getting a little bit of a broken record feel here, but that's what we're dealing with. Uh, and also some updates about fascism in Europe. Starting off with Europe, in Finland, the Nordic Resistance Movement, a neo-Nazi group, has been fully banned uh, by the country's national government, by the you know national level court, uh, for their engagement in hate speech and for their propagation of violent politics, violent propaganda, violent images. You know, wouldn't that be nice if the United States were interested in doing something like that? Another update about armed fascist groups in Europe. In Germany, a group called NSC131, which stands for the National Socialist Club Anti-Communist Action, like, like, like a cipher, you know, 1A3C. Um, this is a group that was founded online in the United States uh, and has active members both in the United States and Germany and elsewhere, presumably founded or at least led primarily, it seems, uh, by a guy named Chris Hood. He's a kind of alt-right entrepreneur who moves around from the Proud Boys, Patriot Prayer, various other groups in the United States. In Germany, police raids in Frankfurt and the rest of Western Germany found militants there with arms and Nazi paraphernalia. You know, we're talking like copies of Mein Kampf, we're talking Hitler images, we're talking swastikas, uh, all of which are illegal to have in Germany. You know, private citizens aren't allowed to have military-style weapons. And people are not allowed to have Nazi paraphernalia. Again, sounds pretty nice, doesn't it? Finally, in the Netherlands, we have a situation in which the government is potentially going to charge the United States ambassador with a violation of international law because it seems that he held a private fundraiser for the extreme right-wing political party that they have, the largest right-wing party in their parliament, which is called the Forum for Democracy. Now, this was a private event on U.S. government property about domestic politics, which is in violation of international law. You're not allowed to engage in domestic political questions as an international actor, especially not as an ambassador. Uh, we'll see more about how that plays out in the coming weeks and months. But, of course, the government of the Netherlands, and particularly the left and more center-left political parties in the country, are particularly upset about this because they are worried about an increasing interaction between the Trump administration and right-wing governments and right-wing political parties throughout the world. In this case, uh, the right-wing party in question in the Netherlands predates Trump by uh, by actually quite a long while. Uh, its leader, Geert Wilders, has been a part of their politics for some time now and says things that are relatively similar to Trump, although, of course, because he is in Europe, he is primarily talking about immigration from Africa and the Middle East. Next thing I want to talk about is a series of leaked chat documents that were leaked by a really wonderful website that you should check out. It's called bellingcat.com. This is a website where investigative journalists post exposés and leaks from right-wing political groups, primarily in the United States. They recently obtained a whole wealth of chat information, texts, emails, things like that, around a group called the Patriot Coalition. Now, the Patriot Coalition 
is a new group that seems to be formed by members of Patriot Prayer, the Proud Boys, you know, these sort of typical fascist groups in the United States that I keep talking about week after week after week. Anyway, the Patriot Prayer is a sort of new umbrella organization, or at least just a designation for these series of conversations. And rather than being ideological or political in the way that the Proud Boys are, for example, you know, the Proud Boys have a pretty established ideology. Patriot Coalition appears to be primarily organized around thuggery, like that they just want to be thugs in the street. And by thugs, I mean, like, they want to carry around guns and intimidate people and hurt them. There was in these text documents discussions about how to engage in street violence. For example, how you could mod a paintball gun to carry chemical irritants in the bullets or to actually shoot rubber bullets, which, as anybody who's been following protests over the last several years knows, can cause permanent injury, uh, such as eye loss or permanent joint injury. They also have other plans for violence throughout the United States, uh, but primarily focused on the city of Portland, which, uh, given the way that the United States government has been talking about the city of Portland, you know, as this sort of, quote, anarchist jurisdiction, you can't really be surprised that they're focusing on it. Uh, this is something that the right wing often does. It decides on a particular enemy and keeps goading them and goading them into being more violent also, you know, trying to increase the amount of violence that is happening in the street. That's something that it seems like Patriot Coalition was expressly attempting to do. They come expecting a fight and then retreat if they think that they would lose that fight. But but if they think that they would win, then they stay and actually fight. Um, members of Patriot Coalition, like members of other fascist groups in Portland and the rest of Oregon and Washington, are known to have used mace baseball bats, brass knuckles, other types of personal armament in their street brawls. Uh, they also often show up armed, not just with paintball guns, but also with real actual guns, um, often uh, assault rifles, not, not just pistols. Uh, these people are interested in and hoping for political street violence. Um, when Kyle Rittenhouse, the shooter in Kenosha, Wisconsin, killed the people that he killed, uh, they were sort of taken aback. The, you know, apparently one of them, one of them even said something like, he one-upped us, quote-unquote. You know, he, he did what we've been threatening to do, uh, almost as if it was sort of like competition about who could be the most violent, right? Uh, because, unfortunately, for them, it is. Now, when it comes to the future, these groups are not daunted by the fact that their documents have been leaked or by the fact that they're gaining increasing national attention. They have plans, like many other right-wing groups have plans, they're openly planning for how they can disrupt the election. Now, what they're talking about is, you know, how can we be armed and in the streets on election day? Where are ballots being picked up? Uh, in places where there is voting by mail, like Oregon has always had. Uh, how can we access those ballots? How can we intercept them? How can we make the election seem fraudulent? How can we make the appearance of interference in the election that would actually, you know, potentially allow Trump to claim that the election is fraudulent to the point that he wants to invalidate it or drag it out a whole lot or, you know, play whatever game it is that he seems to be playing? They also clearly want to disrupt any sort of leftist electioneering in their states and regions. And they've talked about how they could actually use that power to potentially change the election outcome in states where 
the electoral college vote matters a little bit more than in uh, Oregon or Washington. So unfortunately, that's precisely what uh, most people who have been paying attention to and thinking about how this could go down, this is precisely what you could have expected groups like this to do. They are going to try to intercept ballots. They are going to try to make mail-in voting seem fraudulent by actually causing frauds themselves. You know, that's what they're planning on doing. Uh, They want to stand around polling places and intimidate people. Uh, They want voting to be scary. They want to hurt people. And unfortunately, the fact is that we can expect them to succeed. uh, And unfortunately, they already have. Uh, There have already been people who have died because of alt-right political violence. There have been people who have been permanently injured. And that's not even beginning to touch the surface of their connection with the centuries of political violence and state violence that they are applauding and trying to be a part of. So unfortunately, if you live in the United States, this is something that you're going to have to come to expect from politics for the foreseeable future. All right. Last week, I noted the birthday of a prominent fascist, and I realized that I had that entirely backwards. I shouldn't be noting the births of fascists. I should be celebrating their deaths. And so I bring to you today a little segment that I call See You in Hell. This week, we're talking about a Nazi SS officer named Klaus Barbie. Now, Klaus Barbie was a member of the SS, uh, which was the paramilitary intelligence branch of the Nazi party in particular, like as opposed to the German state. He was also part of the Gestapo, which is the secret intelligence branch of the Nazi uh, party. The Gestapo is a part of the SS. He was a counterinsurgency specialist in particular, uh, where he was stationed in the south of France, specifically Lyon, uh, during the collaborationist Vichy regime, uh, during the Nazi occupation of France in World War II. And there he presided over precisely the sort of things that you would expect a Nazi occupier to do. He facilitated the Holocaust. Notably, he deported a group of Jewish orphans from an orphanage to uh, concentration and extermination camps. He helped with the Nazis' fight against the French resistance. And he was unfortunately quite good at it. Uh, He seems to have been responsible for the deaths of thousands of people, arguably, uh, although those numbers are a little bit disputed. Then, after the war, you know, the United States invades and wins, uh, he is recruited by United States intelligence uh, to stop communist organizing in West Germany. Um, Yeah, unfortunately, studying the right wing, I got to tell you that that's not particularly surprising. Uh, The United States engages with Nazi war criminals on a disturbingly regular basis. Anyway, he's recruited by United States intelligence and then also West German intelligence doing what he was doing, counter, you know, counterinsurgency, counterintelligence work. He then flees to Bolivia uh, because the French government realizes that like, hey, this guy is still at large and the United States is working with him. Um, He flees to Bolivia using a network of connections uh, that have since been called rat lines, rat lines. Um, this is an interesting and fascinating subject that you can read about elsewhere, but it's a it's a series of uh, like social networks that allowed former Nazis to escape primarily to South America and Iberia. Uh, so he goes to Bolivia in the mid 60s, where he does 
What else? He continues to be a counterinsurgency, counterintelligence operative, this time for the Bolivian military, uh, where he eventually rises to the rank of lieutenant colonel uh, under the pseudonym of Klaus Altmann. You know, he couldn't hide being a German. He was just clearly a German guy. Now, for those of you who know your uh, Latin American political history, this is the mid-60s to the mid-70s. This is precisely when uh, Che Guevara was in Bolivia trying to promote uh, a Cuban-style revolution there. He was, of course, found and killed by the Bolivian counterinsurgency operations. Now, in the by the mid-70s, uh, French Nazi hunters who like traveled the world and scoured archives trying to find the locations of Nazis so that they could be brought to justice. Uh, they found him in Bolivia. Uh, and after a lengthy fight with the Bolivian military, like a, you know, like a political legal battle about his extradition, he is finally extradited to France in 1983, uh, where he was put on trial for his many human rights violations, including his participation in the Holocaust and his personal participation in torture. Like, like as in he, he actually personally tortured people. He's found guilty and sentenced to life in prison uh, in France, where he died on this day, September 25th, 1991. So, Klaus Barbie, we'll see you in hell. All right, that was this week's 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson. I'd like to thank Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our graphics intro and outro. And I'll talk to you next week. 